0: We are in a series here, uh, a sermon series where I'm preaching through the book of Philippians. If you don't know where that is, it's a small little letter in the New Testament written by Paul, and I'm specifically looking for the ways in which he challenges us to show Christ-like love in our relationships. We all have relationships. We have many relationships in our life, whether it's our family or friends or our coworkers. and as you can see up here, I've put an image They may not sort of strike us as an image that we think of when we think of love and relationships. Um, And part of what I've encouraged us to think of is that the Christian love, the way we understand Christian love is so different than the world's love. And as we look at this picture of someone in submission bowing down, we get these, these words which resonate out of Jesus. When Jesus says, I love you, when Jesus says, I love you, my child, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I will pour out myself for you. I'm not your slave, don't walk all over me, but I am your servant. Um, I will stay calm when you treat me like a child, and I will humble myself. That's Jesus' vision of love, and when we say I love you to someone, that's what we're saying as Christians, not you make me feel fuzzy and nice. Um, And so when you see this image, that's what's going on with the vision of Christian love. And oftentimes it looks far more like someone down on the ground serving than it does anything else. A romantic dinner, perhaps. And when we look at this, I've also encouraged us to avoid some sort of things. Because we look at this and we think, ooh, I don't want to be that person. That person's getting walked all over. I don't want to be walked all over. And I'm not saying be wa- get walked all over. That's not Christian love either. Christian love doesn't feel worthless. You don't feel worthless in Christian love. That's not what's happening in this image. This person's not feeling worthless, or they're not trying to offer cheap forgiveness as if uh, something that wronged, in a way that they were wronged. um, They're just sort of like, well, I'll just forget it. I'll sweep it under the rug. There's no truth hiding in Christian love. Uh, There is justice in Christian love. So we look at this. We've got to make sure that we understand the contours and shapes of Christian love, because when we do, it is counterintuitive, but we're always asking as Christians about forgiveness and faithfulness and reconciliation. These are the things which uh, our hearts are after. And last week, I kind of got into Philippians, showed us a little bit of what the letter was about, got the introductions uh, out of the way, talked about thankfulness and how Christian love, if we filter it through this kind of sacrificial service, ultimately understands how to be grateful for our relationships and how to show gratitude with one another. And this week, we're going to think a little bit about what Christian love has to say to our feelings of loneliness. Um, So here's Paul. Introduced him last week, and if if you missed the sermon last week, it was the first uh, in the series. uh, You can find it online on the website if you if you missed it. But I'll catch you up here. Uh, Introducing Paul as someone who is uh, someone who we should listen to, not only because he's in the New Testament, he's an inspired writer, but way way more than that. Uh, The people who he served loved him deeply. How I talked a little bit about how everything we know about human dignity and what is so good about our civilization today and its understanding of human worth comes from Paul and his letters. Uh, and a little bit about how uh, Jesus himself handpicked Paul. So he's someone who's worth listening to. Um, and I introduced the letter from Philippians. He's writing from prison. I'm going to do a verse-by-verse teaching as much as possible. Last time I started, and it took me like, I don't know, eight or nine minutes to get through the first word. So I'm going to try to do better for you this week, uh, get, make a little more progress. But we are kind of going through a bit of more of a verse-by-verse teaching to orient you here. And we're going to see that in Paul's suffering, in his loneliness, in his shame of being in prison, he's found something. He's found a perspective that has, that has, that is something that he's trying to pass on to the Philippians. In his loneliness, in his pain, in his suffering, he's not embittered. He's not someone who's lost in sulking in his, in his loneliness in his, and um, in his pain. Um, But he also is is not just treating it as trite, either. His pain is real, and he's acknowledging it. Uh, He's teaching the Philippians to learn this way, too, and um, I'm gonna sort of dive into the reality that when we think we're the only ones in the world who are suffering and are lonely, how that can isolate us so significantly in our relationships. Now, when I was in high school, I was a bit of an emotional train wreck, still am sometimes, but uh, it was much, much worse then. And uh, I can remember feeling quite lonely as a child. I would, uh, had an older sister. My first cousins, they were uh, older. I was in a bit of a kind of a gap generation. I don't know if you've, if you've experienced that. You know, your first cousins are a bit older, a bit younger, and you're kind of alone. And I was the only boy in the mix of all of, all of that scenario. And so my enduring memories of childhood are sitting down in my basement on a Saturday by myself watching TV. Playing Nintendo and building Lego—that's my enduring memory. It's not a very fun little memory, is it? Uh, I mean, yeah, I love Lego, but uh, I was a lonely kid. I had a, a lot of time on my hands, and I sort of have learned because of that to cope without people. But because of that, when I got into high school, I was a bit of a, a bit of an emotional train wreck in my relationships. And so I remember I was part of this. I don't know if you guys have this here. It was they like call it peer peer. Um, oh, I've lost the word now. Peer support, peer peer helpers. It was a peer helpers. So they, they tagged me. I thought here's someone who can maybe um, kind of help out some of his friends. And um, well, they they take you on a retreat and they give you all sorts of training about how to listen to people, how to listen to people to pain. And what happened was I was a leader on this retreat. There were others of my peers who were there. Uh, going through some stuff, and I was in my, my room, and one of my friends came in, uh, into the room, a, a, a girl, and um, she closed the door and said, uh, Keith, I have something to share with you. You're someone who's supposed to be trusted. I can share with you something, and so I, she shared with me that she had an eating disorder. She had never told anyone in her life about this eating disorder, and, um, and she was going to entrust me with that. I remember thinking to myself, this is way big. I have no idea. I don't understand this, this, this disorder. I, don't, I don't ha- can't help. But she, she talked to me, and I listened, and I was compassionate. And I thought, and she's like, don't tell anyone. i was like, okay, I, don't, I won't tell anyone. Like, this, is, this is confidential. Little did I know that one of the adult leaders, a teacher from the school, had his ear up against the door and was listening to this whole thing. And when I got to the kitchen of this retreat center, he cornered me and said, I heard everything. You have to tell someone. This is complete violation, right? And so uh, she, she ended up, he, he talked to her, and she ended up sort of was forced to tell people. And it, it really went poorly for her. Like, like her life got a bit ruined because of this. And I just felt terrible. And so what I was doing is I was trying to be a support. I, was, I would continue to, to meet with her for coffee before school, give compassion. But I was also in a dating relationship at the time, and I got dumped. And I just went emotionally. I had no time for this person, and just stopped talking to them. Uh, And part of the reason why, looking back now, this was my first real experience of abandoning someone who needed me, because I was lonely and hurt. Uh, And I was sort of, I ended up sort of sulking a little bit in that pain. And this is real. These are real things that we deal with, right? Um, And... uh, I think uh, as, as we dive into the, these verses, we find out a little bit about uh, how to deal with our, our loneliness and our pain in a way that doesn't isolate us. And that's what I'm going to highlight today. So let's just jump in here to Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. Paul, is, uh, he's shared a little bit of greetings in the letter with his, uh, his friends in Philippi. He started that church, then moved on, and then got locked up. In prison, and he shared some greetings in the first part of the first chapter and a prayer for them, and uh, now he says, "I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel." So, a little context here, reminding that Paul's in bars. We don't know fully why, but probably it was the crime of majestas, which was in, in the in the first century Roman world. That meant that he was challenging the authority of the emperor. Because he was going around from town to town saying, you think you know who rules the world? Uh, any of those Caesars, you think they're the, the, the proper kings. Actually, it's Jesus. He's the real king of the world. And this was a high crime in the Roman world, is to challenge the rule of the emperor in this way. And so it was probably for this reason that Paul was in jail. And we think probably of the city of Ephesus. It doesn't really say he was in prison a couple times for doing this kind of work, but at this this point he was in probably Ephesus. And um, he's writing this letter to the Philippians, and one of the things that he'll say, he doesn't say it in this verse, but he'll use the words, uh, preaching Christ. That's that's why he's in prison, for preaching Christ. And here's what that means. You'll see this word come up. Preaching Christ means not sitting down with someone and convincing them that Jesus is the true God. It's not sitting down and going through an argument, making sure that, that people know that you're right. We, we think about preaching Christ and think, well, well that's Keith's job, or you know, that's so-and-so's job. Well, It's all of our jobs to preach Christ. And, and how do we do that? We, we, we preach Christ by proclaiming that a crucified Jew from the first century, who was raised from the dead, it is the Lord of creation. That's, that's called preaching Christ. And we do that in a, a, a dozen kind of ways, but it's not persuasion, not necessarily persuasion. That can scare us sometimes. The reality is the, what, what Paul says and what the, the, the scriptures tell us is that when we speak the truth, without even having to defend it, when we speak the truth, it, people hear the truth, and the Holy Spirit ministers to them and all of a sudden their life begins to make complete sense. See, we have the responsibility to speak the truth and the Holy Spirit does the rest. Isn't that a good news for us that uh, we don't have to be a Bible scholar or a, a professional to understand? All we have to do is show the love of Christ and when people are ready to hear it and when they ask, what's, what's going on with you? Why is your life different? We share, well, Jesus is our, my king and I follow him. And the promises is that by putting out those words, by putting out those seeds, something begins to happen in the people's hearts around them. And Paul wasn't, he, he's not going around trying to prove that Jesus was more powerful not, or, or um, he could command greater armies than Caesar. He was just going around proclaiming that this risen, crucified and risen Messiah was the Lord and the Spirit started working. So because he was doing that, because he, that offends some people, he was put in prison. And um, we can imagine this, this situation where Paul is sitting by himself in a prison cell. Timothy is there on the outside of the bars, slipping in paper to write letters, slipping in food through the bars. This, another person named Epaphroditus from the Philippian, from the church in Philippi, has come to give Paul money and food. Uh, but he's spending long hours in chains. He says, "I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served." to advance the gospel. You might think that I feel embarrassed now and ashamed, but actually this is forwarding the kingdom. As a result, Paul says, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains in chains for Christ. Paul is schmoozing with the guards. He's telling them a bit about, uh, he, he's using his time, he's using his situation to tell them about Christ. And guess what? Paul's not having to go through all sorts of um, mental gymnastics. He's just speaking the, the truth. And these Roman guards are beginning to believe. And they recognize that he's in prison unjustly. He didn't do anything wrong. He's just preaching the truth. And the whole palace guard and everyone there, you can imagine all of these people. There's a palace. It's Caesar's palace. He doesn't live there, but some of his family members live there. And there's some Roman guards and everyone else is hearing the truth. And Paul is showing us the power of being a victim. We understand the power of victimhood only because Christ himself was the great victim and showed us the power of undoing evil through this way. And victimization only has power when it's cross-shaped. That's the the contention here, um, that it's willful giving, not resentful, not self-pitying, not wallowing, I'm not trying to trivialize all of us to, to one degree or another. Some of us, to a great degree, have been victims. Victims of other people's, of other people's uh, evil, of other people's sin. And I'm not trivializing that. Paul doesn't trivialize that. If you read through what he's been through, he's been almost shown to death through shipwrecks floating in the ocean uh, for days at a time, uh, beaten, flogged, put in prison, if anyone else has any reason to think of themselves as a victim. Paul does. I'm not trivializing suffering. Paul doesn't trivialize it. It was real for him. He understood suffering in ways that many of us will never. Uh, But guess what he says? I'm in prison. I'm in chains. And everyone else knows that it's for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters, the other Christians in Ephesus who are on the outside, hearing that Paul's, Uh, testimonies actually making progress, um, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. Other other brothers and sisters, other Christians are confident and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You see how testimony works in the Christian community. Why it's so important that you tell your story to another person when God is at work in your life because it sparks other people to become courageous and faith-filled too. We oftentimes miss the fact that our job as Christians are to be hearing and giving testimony. Uh, and one of the, the, the clearest way we do that in grassroots churches is through home groups. Home groups are, are not Bible studies. I mean, the scriptures are there. We, we circle around the scriptures in our home groups, but they're, they're built to be spaces for spiritual friendships. Spaces in which you give testimony to others and others give testimony. What's God doing in your life? How is the reading of this scripture touching you? Tell us a story about how, how this is impacting your life or a memory of how God has worked through you. Um, power of testimony, we, we can't underestimate it. And, and when people isolate themselves from other Christians, when Christians isolate themselves from one another and don't hear the testimonies, there's an atrophy that happens in faith. So... Um, Paul's testifying the fact that when I proclaim and show that it's working here, the Christians in Ephesus are um, getting bold too. But there's this backlash. It's not just all good news. There are other people in Ephesus who claim to be Christians who are jealous of Paul. Paul says, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill the later do so out of love, but the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for us while I'm in chains. Here's how he describes describes these Christians. They are after power and influence. That's what they want. That's that's their motive. It's false motive, but that's their motive. They want to be just as influential as Paul, but they're not being. And so um, they're going out trying to preach Christ, and he says they've got so wrapped up in their own power plays, that all they care about is making problems for me. It's like, you can, you can get this situation where these people, um, they've, they're not there to advance the kingdom of God. They're there to advance their own kingdoms. And all they want to do is cause problems for Paul. Paul says they preach out of selfish ambition. And that's our key word here. That's what we're asking God to take away from us. All the selfish ambition which drives us to hurt others, and there's nothing about love in the Christian way, which whose ambition is selfish, and we'll get we'll get into this as time goes on, but we've got to check our hearts. Um, and Paul says, um, "Oops, where am I here?" And I tell you that many, with many tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. You see this jumping forward here. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. And their enemy is not just of Christ, but the cross of Christ. People who don't want to understand that the way of love and the way of Christ involves self-denial and suffering. And they're trying to find a way to thrive and to grow and to be prosperous and influential by using God and Christ. And Paul says, their, their, their glory is their shame. Their Uh, Mind is set on earthly things. And so we ask God, we ask, how do we become people who are not enemies of the cross of Christ? How how do we be Christians who proclaim Christ out of a purity of heart? There's a few more things I want to teach on here, but I want to get into the loneliness piece. Um, Paul says, what does it matter? The important thing is that every way from false motives to true, Christ is preached. Paul says, what does this matter I'm rejoicing that these people are coming at me and slandering me and causing problems for me because the word Jesus is just getting out in the world. And because of that, I rejoice. God, is gonna, God will even use that. Um, but he says, here's the thing. Uh, I'll continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. How does Paul get through being a victim, being enslaved, being in a situation where he had all the reasons to sulk. He understands two things. He needs the love of his fellow believers. He needs them to express the selfless love of Christ through prayers and the gift of the money that he sent. But he also remembers that the spirit of Jesus Christ is with him. He can get through this kind of, into this kind of thinking because Jesus himself is with him in that cell ministering to him. He goes on to say, um, many things about this, but here's the thing: ultimately, Paul knows how to suffer well. Uh, I'm gonna just move ahead here. Loneliness. Oh, no, just sorry, you, you can read Philippians; it's good stuff. Uh, check out chapter one. <laughs> um, he talks about suffering and says it's a gift. How does he get to this level? How does he understand suffering as a gift? And when it comes to relationships, I would say one of the greatest experiences of suffering is to be lonely. Now, I think that there's a scale here of loneliness. I'm not just saying that everyone, everyone is lonely, so get over it. No, I'm not saying this. Like some people are in social situations where loneliness is a deeper, uh, more, more painful reality. But the, the real thing is is that loneliness is a pervasive human experience. As a pastor, I could, you, maybe you don't see this because people don't up to, uh, open up to other people like they do to pastors. But people have opened up to me quite a bit. And many, many people, even in what seems to be the best relationships, are very, very lonely. And part of the reality of, of Paul's situation he, is he looks back to Christ. He says, Christ was shamed. He died alone. His friends abandoned him. And he still had the compassion to pray, Father, forgive these people for they do not know what they do and paul says i can i can have the power of christ in me i can do the same thing i can recognize that because i'm a christian because i'm in christ my loneliness aligns me and knits my heart together with the heart of christ that's what he's learned to do with the pain of loneliness. And you can see that there's a difference, the difference perspective. Someone who's lonely, who's experiencing the the gut level, deep, real pain of loneliness in their life. I mean, loneliness is a very painful thing to experience. Um, Are they going to grasp after the fulfillment of that loneliness and try to take everything they can to fill that up? Or are they going to learn to deny that and give it away? This is the way of the cross of Christ. This is the way of love. so I've, I've read a book by Jean Vanier. You may, you may have heard about it before. It's called Becoming Human. And Becoming Human is the story of how this one man spent his whole adult life living with and learning from and ministering to people with great disabilities. You know, group homes where people live and have profound disabilities. They cannot live on their own in society. So he created this whole vast worldwide movement called L'Arche, in which people who are dejected and lonely and isolated could come and find community, but not just community. They could find the love which would heal their profound loneliness. And you can imagine people with um, with profound disabilities experience loneliness in ways that many of us will never experience. Um, And so this community was... um, Built in order to to show the love of Christ in a communal way to those who wouldn't be able to experience it otherwise. And Vanier talks about his learning, what he's learned about loneliness. It's a profound loneliness in these types of communities. He says it's a painful reality. There's terrible chaos, terrible chaos in our life which can spring from extreme loneliness. And most of us, what we do with it is we cover it up. We think, I'm not lonely or... I just, we covered up with success, or we covered up with busyness, or we covered up with all sorts of other things, so we don't have to admit and recognize there's a big empty hole inside of me, which I call loneliness. But um, Jacques says if we stop all that recognition and success stuff, if we live among people who can't get that anyway, we're going to discover that loneliness is a profoundly human experience. He says, um, he actually calls it something essential. Loneliness cannot go away because nothing in all of creation can fill the human heart. Nothing, nothing, not the relationships that we have with one another, and not even at this moment of our lives, our relationship with God can fully fill that hole up. It's part of the reality of this broken world that we live in. Uh, he says it's essential, but here's the thing we have to learn to take that gaping hole of loneliness in our life and find its creative energy. It's like loneliness is a source of creative energy. Artists, poets, mystics, I don't want to do a raise of hands here, but anyone who feels like they just really don't fit, (laughs) anyone feel that way, Um, have learned to use loneliness as a way which drives them to change the injustices of the world, which drives them to uh, find God, loneliness is the very thing he says that urges deeper union with God for mystics. So there's, we have a choice between us with our loneliness, and it's the choice of the cross or the choice of, of self-taking and grasping after. Will we grasp after fill, filling that loneliness, or will we give it away? And if we give it away, we find the creative energy which drives us into changing the world. But if we Grasp after and taking, trying to take and fill that space within us. All that results, he says, is apathy and depression. He says, he goes on to say that life is full of change. Life changes and moves and evolves. And this can be a source of great loneliness. Great loneliness because uh, things never say the same. Just the, just the minute when we think we have the grasp on life, it changes. Uh, but he says, when we refuse to accept that this is part of life, this is an unavoidable part of life for every human being around us. Um, it's going to be a great source of loneliness. Um, but when we accept it, when we come to realize that this is the world we live in and the realities for us all, something profoundly um, regenerative and transformational can happen. And so he's, he's, um, he's saying things like, if we pity ourselves because we're lonely... If we sulk because we're lonely, we're going to get lost. Lost in the abyss of this life which is changing all around us. But he's also saying we have, it's not just get over it. Get over your loneliness, you poor little soul. It's not, that's not, I mean, you think about Paul. Paul's not saying that. He's not saying, um, I'm lonely in prison, but look how strong I am. I've just gotten over it. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I've learned to link my suffering as a gift which draws me into the presence of my God. Um, and as we do so as we learn to walk with our hands open uh, if you remembered one of Jesus' parables about unforgiveness that talked about uh, a a slave going and choking other slaves how do we choke one another? we choke one another sometimes it's it's just a very powerful imagery because we're grasping after the fulfillment of the loneliness but how do we go about this? how do we find belonging? because we all need it, right? We can't fill this hole up, but we all need the belonging. When we, when we take our hands off, like our, our hands, our claws off of the need to fulfill our loneliness and learn to use it as a creative energy which, which guides us with God, like how do we do this? Where do we search for belonging and how does it work? And I think some people may not know how belonging works. And belonging is a hard thing because, and it's, it's something that's very difficult, because um, we don't necessarily get to choose who wants to belong to us going to dive into this for a minute. We, we find great belonging in other people, right? We look at people and we think, I want to belong to you. I want to belong to you. I'm attracted to you. I'm, you, you, you seem to do something for me. I, I, I'm, I want to belong to you. Belonging works by someone choosing to belong to another person. And sometimes we don't get to choose who wants to belong to us. Um, but it's the measure of our humanity. It's the measure of our Christ-likeness of how much we let other people belong to us. And in a community like Grassroots, it's very easy to go around searching for people to want to belong to. That's fine. I mean, home groups are a great space for this. Um, but we also have to learn to be people who let others belong to us. I, you know, again, our home, group, our home group ministry is set up so that spiritual friendships and belonging can happen. Happens in these spaces. And I hear some people say, well, I don't need that. I have belonging. I have, I, I have people in my life that give me belonging. I don't need that. I've got that taken care of in, from someone else. I say, that's fine. That's you know, okay. That's the reality. But you realize that there are people sitting across this room that don't have belonging. They need that from someone else. You see how we're moving from uh, a worldly thinking to Christ-like thinking. I'm going to be someone to, uh, for someone who needs belonging. And part of the reality, I mean, you, you hear, you hear oftentimes, well, I, I, part of a church, but they're not vulnerable, and no one opens up to me. Well, here, let me teach you something. There are, this is another sort of finding belonging thing. There are four spaces in, in this world that, that where belonging happens. One of them is a public space, and that's what we're in right now. You know, when pastors say, turn to your neighbor and share, dot, 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 you all kind of cringe, right? That's because I've just transgressed the space. This is a public space, which means no one's trying to orchestrate connection. No one's trying to make it happen for you. It's just, like, if you go to a concert or you go to a place like a a park, if you become really good friends and start sharing intimate details with some stranger, it's kind of weird, right? Like, belonging doesn't happen there. Belonging doesn't happen in public spaces. And so if you're looking at a church and trying to find belonging and going, what's wrong with me? No one's coming to talk to me in this space. Recognize that this isn't the space where belonging happens. Uh, But like I said, two minutes in the space changes. And all of a sudden, it's social. But here, social space is also a space where people end up talking about surfacey things, their interests. What sports teams do you like? You like that sports team? Well, I'm a rival. I like the other sports team. That's what kind of happens in social spaces. And sometimes you catch up on what's happening. Social space is good. But recognize that if, if you're not getting belonging by being here after church... It's because this is not where belonging is found. Belonging is found in two other spaces, private spaces and intimate spaces. That's why we've set up home groups. I'm starting to feel like this is a plug for home groups. It's not meant to be that. Um, But just to teach you, um, to help you know if you don't know.